to introduce to you a gentleman that has taken the time out. He's actually from Brisbane, so he's a stranger to Australia. Uh, so, um, so, uh, so I'd like to invite to you, I'd like to invite our, our, our speaker, Mr. Alex Stark, please. Come on up. You make you feel welcome. <laughs> thank, thank you very much for that, brother. Thank you. I, I do, my first question, my first question, your last name's Stark. What is your father's name? Good question. Unfortunately, it's not, you know, I'm not part of the Avengers squad. Oh, um, okay, okay. Yeah. So what is your dad's name, by the way? It's Colin. My son's name will be Tony. I'm not going to miss that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So um, I was about to call you, so Tony. Um, <laughs> so Alex, so you are part of a ministry known as Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Yeah, yeah. Okay, can you please explain to us, because um, some of us may not be aware of what uh, RZIM is. Yeah. Could you share a little bit about what, what that does, if that's okay? Yeah, totally. I'm sort of fresh off the block in this ministry. I always thought I was gearing up for pastoral ministry myself. Um, But the major vision of the ministry of which I'm a part is to help the thinker believe and help the believer think. In short, doing apologetics to serve evangelism. I used to think that apologetics was, you know, involved people who cared about more about being right than kind, and I thought that was more of a hindrance to the gospel than a help. Um, But seeing the way these guys use apologetics, answering people's questions, ultimately to serve evangelism, it's actually a really encouraging thing to to witness and be a part of. So that's kind of what I do. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, uh, are you from a Christian home? No, I'm not. Yeah, my folks are not Christians. Uh, Okay, then. So uh, if you don't mind me asking, just very briefly, then how do you, from a non-Christian home, become a Christian? Yeah, um, this is my favorite part in a way. Um, Yeah, I'll give you the the really short version, but um, there was two things true about me growing up. One, I was a deep thinker, but not a good thinker. Um, So I played football and chased girls. Uh, more than I read textbooks and tried to find answers to the questions that I'd ask when I was falling asleep looking at my belly button. So I was a deep thinker, not a good thinker. Um, So I was quick to say Christians are deluded, but I wouldn't myself research. On the other end of the spectrum, I was also really guilt-ridden. I was brought up with a pretty pretty heavy moral framework. I knew when I'd done the wrong thing. Uh, I always felt really guilty when I'd done the wrong thing according to my own standard. And I, I needed someone to explain this this tendency in me. I wanted to know the truth, but I didn't care enough to look for it. I had a guilt-ridden conscience, and I didn't know what explained it. And uh, when I finally heard the gospel when I was around 15, to cut a long story short, uh, the gospel basically said that I was made for God. I chose myself. We're geared towards to want truth, but we're too lazy to find it. That's part of us turning in on ourselves. That's the sin problem. Uh, and actually the very guilt you experience is because you were made for God, but you've turned it on yourself. And when someone told me this story and started giving me language for the experience that I'd had that I hadn't yet had language for, it just unlocked my imagination to God, and I stopped calling Christians deluded, and I started to think they had a story that made sense of the world, and I myself became attracted to it, and lo and behold, sort of found Jesus along the way. Um, yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Praise God. So my mm. question then is, yeah. um, how did your parents respond to you becoming one of these deluded Christians? Yeah, um, yeah, not well at first, actually, and uh, it's been a real journey on the other side of that, but there's two reasons that it didn't go well. I went from a boy who was playing football like four days a week, uh, involved with friends, social life, that kind of thing, to now being involved with the church about three days a week, uh, and I had all Christian friends, and I pretty much created this Christian ghetto for myself, and so the first thing my parents thought when I started going to church was cult. This guy's involved in a cult, and, uh, and I, being 15 years old, not a good thinker, still a deep thinker, not a good thinker, I wasn't able to articulate to my parents what the gospel was, what it meant, how it changed my life, why it was good news. Uh, and so much of our relationship on the other side has been, been a hangover from that. Um, and as I sort of matured, just a normal human thing, 
I was able to sort of more sharply articulate why it's good news, what I became a part of, and, and how it could be true, and how they could entertain it. And so, they're on a real journey themselves, but um, it's been wonderful just to see how God sort of matured me as a young person, uh, and then sort of equipping me to be able to articulate to them in such a way that they now don't think I'm a part of a cult, um, they think I'm just a normal human, human being who's found something true and good, uh, and they're actually really proud uh, that my, now my sister and I are both Christians, so... That's yeah. awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Praise God. And we'll continue to pray for you and your family as well in regards to your journey and their journey yeah, in coming to know Jesus. My final question for you then is, uh, what then would you consider yourself passionate about? Besides your wife, uh, what would you consider yourself passionate about regarding ministry, regarding the things of God and mm. the desire God's placed in your heart? Yeah. Good question, Joe. Um, I'm passionate about preaching. I hope that comes through this morning. <laughs> um, I think... There are a lot of things that you can aim your life at, and I learned early on in Bible college that the best thing to aim your life at in ministry is just to be helpful for people to see Jesus. And so, I want to be helpful for non-Christians, for Christians, just to be freed up from whatever problem they have to get a good glimpse of Jesus. Um, so, my main desire in life is just to be helpful, yeah. Um, whether that means I get in the way and my personality helps someone see things in the Word of God, or whether that means I try and get out of the way. Um, but sort of feeling myself recruited in all ways by God to be helpful for people to see Jesus. That's, um, yeah. That's yeah. a great answer. I, I, mm. I didn't give him any of these questions. It's yeah. all just right now. So praise God. I really cool. appreciate that. So if you want to talk more with Alex afterwards, Alex and mm. Kath afterwards, please um, have a chat with them. I'm going to get some resources as well from you, what I did with Jeff Follin from last week. Mm. That might uh, not only help introduce us to the ministry, but help us in our journey to grow, to develop, to disciple and be disciples as well. So I'll yeah. we get, by all means, he's a lovely guy to talk to. Have a good chat with him afterwards over coffee. Well, I was going to pray for you now, bro, and yeah, then we're really great. excited as to what Lord, the Lord will teach us through you. Okay, Heavenly great. Father, we thank you for Alex. We thank you for the journey that you've taken him on and his willingness, Lord, to be sensitive to you, uh, to recognize his own weaknesses, his own failings, even the moral framework that you raised him in, Lord, to draw him to yourself. We thank you that you brought this about to his salvation and to the developing of his own personal relationship with you. Uh, we thank you for the message you've placed upon his heart to share with us this morning. We pray for him that you will anoint him by your spirit, give him the right words to speak, help him to articulate the wonderful message and communicate it to us where we can not only receive it, but be changed by it also. So we commit him to you now. Glorify yourself through your servant, Alex, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks, bro. Amen. Great. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Joe, I asked Joe how long he typically preaches for, and he said three hours. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but we do have a sort of a bit of a marathon this morning, so I'll try and try and get through it all. But um, yeah, I met Joe three weeks ago at Balcom Hills, and uh, I heard I heard his voice before I saw his face. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> we were walking through the school grounds, and I heard this big burly old voice, and I was like, "That guy sounds fun." Um, and then I turn around, it's a Christian, and I was like, "Oh, he's the chaplain." And we got talking about what I did and uh, what my colleague Jordan, who was speaking that day in the school, did, and. Uh, Joe was like, Jordan should come and preach, and uh, Jordan was like, well, I'm not here, and, and Joe was maybe a sigh of disappointment, and then Jordan's like, what about Alex? And I was just standing there minding my own business, and, and Joe was like, absolutely. Um, and I, was, I think that's weird for two reasons, if you can humor me here, Joe. One, Joe's never heard me speak. Um, no, no, no. But I think that revealed to me that Joe's quite trusting. Um, so anything in life, if you want it, just go and ask Joe. I'm sure he'll just give it to you. 
The other reason it's weird um, is if you haven't, if, and he told me to kind of preach on anything I want, and so the worst thing you can do to any preacher is tell them to preach on anything they want, because they preach on everything they can, right? <laughs> Just like download a fire hydrant of facts. Um, but as it stands, I want to talk today about evangelism, a bit about what I do. Uh, not the one and only method by which to do evangelism, there's no such thing. Uh, we're going to look at Acts 17 and, and look at one way in which we can do evangelism, just one method um, to do that. But um, it's going to be in Acts 17. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them, uh, starting in verse 16 uh, through to verse 34. Uh, it's a really famous passage in the New Testament. If you ever hear a preacher come and say, I'm going to preach on evangelism to those who are sort of pre-Christian in understanding, they'll typically go to this passage. It's Paul on the Areopagus, standing before the ruling council. And it's one of two accounts in the New Testament, and specifically in the book of Acts, it's one of two accounts where Paul is preaching to pagans, where he's preaching to non-Jews. Um, two accounts where the speech is actually recorded. And not everything that Paul would have said, we need to get this really clear before we get into it, not everything that Paul would have said when he's standing before the Areopagus would have been recorded. Um, it's just that which Luke, the writer of Acts, also the writer of the Gospel, uh, Gospel of Luke, it's just that which Luke wants you to know as the reader. So not everything would have been recorded, which means there could have been other things that Paul said, but the Gospel writer Luke didn't feel fit to put it in, which is fine. Um, it's actually part of the beauty of the way the Scriptures were developed, both God inspiring them and humans writing them both together for our benefit. But Luke doesn't include everything. Um, and here's the context. Paul's on his second missionary journey. He's done his first. He's gone back to Antioch, sort of the hub from which all these apostles to the Gentiles get sent. Paul goes back uh, and then leaves again. And he's just traveled to Philippi where he plants a church uh, through Lydia, sort of a, um, sort of a rich uh, sort of um, fabric worker in the, in the city there, Philippi. Um, Lydia gets saved, plants a church in Philippi. Then he goes to prison. Um, not like Joe. Joe's actually going to prison. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> he gets locked in. Joe's going to visit gets locked in prison, and then him, Timothy, and Silas make their way to Thessalonica, and then from Thessalonica to Berea, and then Paul leaves Timothy and Silas in Berea, and he makes his way to Athens. And we pick up in verse 16, and I want to say one thing before I read through the entire passage, because the first line is just amazing. It says, while Paul was waiting in Athens, while Paul was waiting in Athens for Timothy and Silas, I don't know what you do when you're waiting for something in life. Maybe you're in a line getting a coffee. Maybe you're waiting for the next sort of piece of stability in your chaotic world. But what Paul does while he's waiting is he does evangelism. He takes every opportunity. And I just think that's amazing. So let's get into the text. While Paul was waiting, verse 16, for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. 
Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, "'People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, quote-unquote, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you.'" The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they would inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead." And then the next two verses just describe the people's reaction. Some believed, some didn't. Those that believed were actually quite well known in the Areopagus. One was part of the ruling council. Some were elite people, some were not. And Luke just describes that for us. But I want to talk today about evangelism. One method that we learned from this text that Paul employed when speaking to people who've got no Christian framework, no background in the Jewish Scriptures, none of that kind of stuff. I want to, I want to do that. Before I do that, I want to just give three brief prefaces, three brief ideas, which even though this method that I'm going to do over here uh, is, is optional and can be employed as one tool on the tool belt of an evangelist, what I say before I get into that is universal and it's not optional. It's about our expectations when we come to do evangelism. So, three really brief prefaces and then we're going to get into the, the text. The first, if we're ever going to do evangelism well, the first thing we need to know is the story itself. Um, the word gospel is a combination of two Greek words, and in our translation, we just translate the word not gospel, but good news. Uh, it comes from the Greek word euangelion, you meaning good, and gelion meaning message, bared by the messengers. Um, and the Greek word for preaching the gospel, used in the New Testament about 77 times, um, it's, it's best translated to preach the good news. Uh, and so, what you're doing when you're preaching the gospel is you're actually delivering a message, you're delivering a message. And so, what's really important when you're doing evangelism is knowing the story. If I were to ask you, what is the good news, what would you say? And it's really scary when you ask that question and when you try and answer it, because we all have a brief sort of uh, broad idea. It's about Jesus, I'm pretty sure. It's about how He saved us, I'm pretty sure. It's about forgiveness and life and sin and hell and death and resurrection and I'm pretty sure, but what's the particular message? Was there one? Can you boil it down? Can you expand it? What's the gospel? I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you're trying to reach out to someone, bear witness to the gospel with a friend or colleague or whatever it is, family member, and you just have like a brain fart, and so they're like, so why do you believe this thing? Or you start talking about the story itself, and, and you just get stuck. You're like, I don't know what to say next. What's going to be most helpful for them? What's going to get them through their objection to the Christian faith to see a good, good story here? And if you haven't had that experience, you're lying, or you've never tried, because it happens to all of us. When I was um, leading youth group when I was younger, um, not that I'm not young, um, but when I was leading 
when I was leading youth group when I was uh, a bit younger than I am now, um, one of the things our sort of major leader um, sort of tasked our young people with was something he called gospel in a minute. And what he'd do with the young people is he'd get them to try and articulate what the gospel message is in one minute. And so uh, what we do is we'd get our phone out, put our time on, like I've done now for you, so I preached just under three hours. And we'd get our phone out, put our timer on, and, uh, and we'd say, three, two, one, give me the gospel in a minute. And one person would start, and they'd say, well, the gospel, God created us, and we were in a garden, and it was a great garden. And then there was a tree, and there was a talking snake, and there was an apple. Was there, actually, maybe it was, I don't know if it was an apple, it was a piece of fruit. The Bible's not clear, but it was a piece of fruit, and it's really important. And they'd get stuck there. Others would start talking about God's love and forgiveness, and they'd be majoring on this for about 45 seconds, and then they'd actually be in like the last 15 seconds realize, actually, there's more to the story than God's love and forgiveness. It's actually that we're fallen before Him, but they wouldn't have time, and so they'd brain fart, and at the end, they wouldn't be able to get the rest of the story out. Um, so what we're going to do, I'm going to get my timer out. No, I won't, I won't do that, but <laughs> if I were to ask you what the gospel is, would you be able to articulate it? Um, and however you do answer this question, it'll reveal one of two things. One, what you rightly or wrongly think the gospel is, for better or worse, it's a scary thought. Um, or two, whether you've thought about what the gospel is. Whether you've thought about what the gospel is. And actually part of the great commandment, when the guy goes up to Jesus and says, what do you think the major, the best commandment is? How do you sum up the law? Jesus says, well, what do you kind of think? And the guy says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Part of the great commandment is to love God with our mind and part of loving God with our mind is to be able to articulate the very faith that we've received. Now, we might not be able to do that in the same way that our pastor, employed full-time, who's given to doing that day in, day out, can do, but we should be able to be helpful. We should be able to be helpful. And so, what's the story? Well, I like to break it down in two ways. On one side, you've got the biblical story, which is not the gospel, by the way. On the other side, you've got the particularity of the gospel message. The biblical story has five pillars, created for good, damaged by evil, reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, restored for better and sent to heal the world, awaiting the day that God returns. Created for good, damaged by evil, reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, restored to heal the world, awaiting the day that the King comes to make everything new. That's the five pillars of the biblical story. What's the gospel? It's the middle one. It's the Jesus story. It's the story of Jesus' life, Jesus' death, His burial, His resurrection, and what that means for us, and what that means for us. And so, when we're preaching the gospel, we're actually just talking about Jesus, if I could boil it down. That might sound really broad, actually, but if that's your aim, it's life-changing for evangelism. We're just talking about Jesus. So, when we do evangelism, we want to think about four things. Feel free to write these down. Four things. One, what the larger biblical story is. If you're preaching to someone who's got no framework in the Jewish Scriptures or the Christian story, they're going to need that story. Because that's the story in which the gospel proclamation makes most sense. Otherwise, Jesus is just a good moral teacher, nice divine figure, but He's actually the long-awaited Messiah who the Jews were hoping for, and He flipped their world upside down. So, you need to have the biblical story in mind, that's point one, and then you want to have these three things in mind. When you're, when, you're, when you're talking about the gospel, you want to preach about who Jesus is, you want to proclaim what Jesus did, 
and you want to promise what Jesus secured. You want to preach about who Jesus is. You want to proclaim what Jesus did. You want to promise what Jesus secured. And so that means know the biblical story. Grow in it. Memorize it, even. And then talk about Jesus. And when you do that, you realize that the Christian offer and what Jesus secured, it's it's life, it's meaning, it's purpose, it's a destiny with God, it's life with Him now, it's purpose for creation, it's power to explain the brokenness in this world and in even our own evil hearts. It's through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we can have relationship again with God by no merit of our own, but simply by grace through faith, so we can't boast. It's an answer, not just to humanity's plight, doesn't it just explain the bad things? It's also an invitation to real, human, meaningful, restful, joyful life. That's the gospel. It gives us a mission where we care for the rest of the world and it provides hope that one day it won't be for nothing because all care of creation is just an anticipation of the day that God comes back to make everything new. This is the biblical story and it's particularly the gospel story. It's everything. And so we, know, we need to know this story. We need to know it. It's preface number one. That took longer than I thought. Um, second, we need to know our limits. There's an old story told of the first Protestant Christian missionary who ever went to China. Uh, his name was Robert Morrison. In 1807, the British East India Company uh, would not allow him to go on one of their ships, so he jumps on another ship, gets chatting with the captain of the ship. Uh, and when the ship's captain learned that Morrison was a missionary, the captain asked him this question. He said, so, Mr. Morrison, do you expect to make an impact on the great Chinese empire as a missionary? And Mr. Morrison had this incredible response. He said, no, sir, but I expect God will. No, sir, but I expect that God will. The second preface I want to give this morning is that whenever you think about doing evangelism, the most liberating and exciting thing you can do is remember this, that it's primarily God's task to evangelize the human heart, to apply the balm of the gospel to the people that we minister to. And when you remember this, you're actually free to just be faithful. You don't need to force the human heart to feel guilt. God will do that, so you pass on the message accordingly. You don't need to force the human heart to repent. God's Spirit does that. We do preach the message, absolutely. But we're not trying to get them to do the thing that only God can make them do. We're just trying to be faithful. And when you know that evangelism is primarily God's task, you're just free to get involved. You're free to be helpful by getting in the way with your personality and God ministering through you. You're free to step back because you know maybe you're, it's not the right time for you to go be, in, be involved. Lastly, we just need to be wise. My first pastor, would, his name was Red. Um, he would always say, just don't be a dumb Christian. Um, and what he meant by that, it was kind of harsh, and we're from Brisbane, so you'll forgive us for that kind of language, but what he meant by that was, just think about stuff. Just be really normal. Um, so what's, what's normal when you're trying to do evangelism? Um, well, it's one thing to try and learn the gospel by articulating it in a minute, but if you're in an elevator with someone and you think, I've got to get the gospel out by the time we reach ground zero, that's really not normal. Um, if you're delivering the news um, to someone, your main objective is to pass on the message faithfully in a way that they understand based on the practical circumstances. Uh, and so the purpose of knowing the story and trusting in God and being faithful with the message is all about, therefore, just passing it on in a way that they can understand. And that means you're not going to be able to hit the whole story at once sometimes. Does that mean you failed to preach the gospel? No way. 
It means that you've tried to be wise with the time that you have and pick a point in the story that best resonates with where your audience is at. If you were to take all the speeches of the apostles in the book of Acts, I think there's, there's a number of them, but um, there's eight addresses by Peter, there's nine speeches by Paul, and there's one lengthy sermon by Stephen, Acts chapter 8, where he's addressing the Sanhedrin. If you were to look at those sermons, um, you'd actually realize that they're not all the same. Yes, there's overlap. They often talk about Jesus, the resurrection, judgment, those kinds of things. There's overlap, but they're different, which means there's only three possibilities as to why the sermons are different each time. Either one, the gospel changes every time they preach it. It's bad news. Two, they forget parts of it because they've got bad memories. Or three, they're just adjusting what and how they communicate the unchanging message of the gospel based on the practical circumstances of their listeners and the time that they have. And it can't be the first two. So it's got to be the third. It has to be that they were drawing on the unchanging gospel in a way that accommodated their audience. They were good improvisers. Why? Because they knew the story and they trusted God, so they were just trying to be faithful. They're my three prefaces. They're my three prefaces. Embrace your limits, learn the story, and accommodate your neighbor by being why? So, let's get into the text. I want to look at how Paul engages people in this passage and pull out three things that, um, again, it's not the one sovereign select way to do evangelism, but it is really helpful, especially in our context. I want to pull out three, three, three sort of headings, and the headings are this. Paul does three things. He connects with his audience's worship, he critiques their worldview, and three, he calls them to Jesus. He connects with their worship, he critiques their worldview, and he calls them to Jesus. So first, Paul connects. Um, I want you to notice what Paul does. He connects to people in their context, and he connects with something they love or something they believe. He complements where they're at first, which is huge, kind of like an encouragement sandwich or critique sandwich in a way. Um, What do I mean? Well, Paul gets accused, if you trace back to the start of the passage, he gets accused of preaching foreign deities uh, in in the marketplace, in the marketplace of ideas. Now, because it's Athens, Athens quite a, a city full of idolatry um, and foreign deities, that's not, that's not bad news. Paul is completely legitimate in preaching anything he wants, really, in the marketplace of ideas, because that's what it is. It's a marketplace of ideas. It's not just where you buy goods, it's where you buy worldviews and philosophies and religions and idols and ideas. Um, but they've got an idol for everything. But if you wanted to bring your idol or your religion into the marketplace, you needed to get approval from the Areopagus Council. And this is why Paul gets brought before the Areopagus. He's introducing foreign deities. No one in Athens knows what he's speaking about. And so they say, let's ship him off to the Areopagus so he gets approval to preach what he's talking about. Um, The word Areopagus, it means hill, pagos, and of Ares, the Greek equivalent of Mars. And so in your Bibles, it might say Mars Hill. Um, That's actually... um, the wrong translation, just because, even though it means that sort of literally, um, it assumes that Paul was taken outside of the marketplace of ideas up the hill, Um, but the Areopagus Council used to meet up there, but by Paul's day, they'd actually started meeting just off to the side of the um, marketplace uh, in the the Royal Colonnade, and so that he's actually, when Paul gets shipped off to the ruling council, um, he's actually in the midst of the council to the side of the marketplace of ideas, and so his whole audience is not just the ruling elite, but the philosophers, it's the Jews, it's the Greeks, it's the non-thinkers, it's the people selling goods, it's everyone. So he's before everyone when he gets shipped off. So just imagine being there. 
one of the other interesting things about the Areopagus Council is it was the place 400 years before where Paul, when Paul's standing there, it's the place, interestingly, where Socrates, some of you might know that name, Socrates stood trying to convince the Athenian ruling elite that democracy was a good idea. Socrates is standing before the ruling elite trying to convince them that he should be able to talk about democracy uh, in the marketplace of ideas. And what happens to Socrates? He gets killed. Socrates is before the Areopagus Council and they kill him for this foreign idea. Democracy is the bread and butter of our Western society, is it not? Back then it was not. And so Luke's writing this story and he brings Paul before the Areopagus Council and so the first question on every reader's mind is this, are they going to kill Paul for for these foreign deities that he's preaching about? How's Paul going to get out of this one? Paul clearly doesn't care, he's been shipwrecked, he's been abandoned, he's been struck with cords, he doesn't mind. But what does Paul do? What does he do? And this is what he does. He connects with them first. Hostile environment, no Judeo-Christian worldview, no history in the Scriptures. And what does Paul do? He connects with their worship first. Listen to this, verse 22. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, "'People of Athens, I can see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul literally always does this. If you were to look at Paul's speeches to Jews and synagogues, you'd realize that the thing that he goes to first is the Jewish Scriptures. Why? Well, if you were brought up as a Jew, the, the authoritative text which informed your world and your values and your life, what is it? It's the Jewish Scriptures. So Paul starts with the Jewish Scriptures with the Jews. He's now before the Areopagus in a world full of pagan idolatry. Maybe no history in the Jewish Scriptures. Where does he go? Well, he doesn't go to the Jewish Scriptures. That wouldn't work. There'd be nothing to connect with. He notices an altar when he's walking around the city. And it says, an altar to an unknown God. There's sort of, it's like an insurance plan for idolatry. Well, we've got an altar for this God and this God and this God. Let's just have an altar to the God that we don't know, just so if He actually exists, we can make sure we've ticked the box, right? That's the Athenian pagan idolatry lifestyle. It's a city full of idols. Um, One Roman satirist, he joked that it was easier to find an idol in Athens than it was a man. Another sort of writer back in Rome said this, that Athens is one great altar, one great sacrifice. It's a very religious city. And Paul, he's thinking, hmm, these guys have a different God to me. They have a different upbringing to me. What do I talk about? And he notices that that they worship. He disagrees with what they worship, but he notices that they worship. And so he starts there. He starts not by saying, what you worship is good. He says, that you worship is true. Let's start there. And so he says, he connects something common between what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be them. Christians are worshippers. So was his audience there. For Jews, he went to the Scriptures. For pagans, he went to their idols. And this becomes the text, if you like, that Paul starts to unpack. He says, here's the text for today, kind of like I did with Acts 17. He says, the text is this altar. Now, let's unpack it. Is it true? Is it good? Is it beautiful? And he connects there. So, what about us? How does this apply to us? Well, one of the ancient pieces of wisdom which our culture has forgotten is that humans are worshippers. The West, in its secular context with atheism rife, doesn't think that. 
If you ask a normal person what they think they are, they would say, I'm a, a bunch of atoms, I'm just a material being. Um, they wouldn't say they're worshippers. They'd say, we've moved past worship. Worship is something that humans don't do. We're just animals. That's the atheistic picture. But they're wrong. Whether you're an atheist or a Buddhist, whether you're a religious non-affiliate, meaning you don't tick the box on the Australia survey that comes out every few years, regardless of what you think about ultimate reality and life, everyone in this room is a worshipper. Now, I'm pretty sure I'm among friends. Most of you here would be Christians. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I've got some good news and some bad news. It's that you're a worshipper. It's good that you're a worshipper. It might be bad if what you worship isn't true or good or beautiful. Everyone's worshippers. A few years ago, there was an atheist bus campaign in the UK, um, sort of put on by a conglomeration of new atheists, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, all these guys. And these guys, they want to so vociferously represent atheism in the public sphere to try and convince people that atheism is true. And they ran this bus campaign, and so what they did is they, pl- like, they plastered posters on the side of buses, and the posters read these words. It said, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. There's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. That's the bus campaign. Christians don't believe that. I don't believe that. This is the bus campaign. But look what it reveals. It reveals that even if you, regardless of what you think about life, even if you think that there's no God, you actually want to center your life around something. In this case, it was pleasure. There's probably no God, so just enjoy your life. In other words, the human heart, it's typical of the human heart, not just to demote God out of existence, but to promote something else in his place. David Foster Wallace, he was a postmodern novelist. He was an agnostic. He didn't know whether we could believe in God. Um, In an address speech that he gave to a graduating class at Kenyon College back early 2000s, he said something absolutely amazing. Not a Christian, and he acknowledged this. He said this. He said, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. See, worship is the habit of entrusting your meaning, your joy, your significance, your safety, and your satisfaction and security to something. That's what worship is. And if you don't have that something, you end up becoming meaningless, worthless, insecure, vulnerable, despairing, and fearful. When we worship something created, we take something that was good and we make it God. It then turns into an idol and then a demon because it never fulfills us. Here's what I want to say to you. If you as a Christian can find out what that thing is for somebody, if you can find out what that thing is for the person in your world that you're trying to reach with the gospel, connect with that. Affirm that it's good and then go on to tell tell them why it's not God. And that's what Paul does in the next section. Now, sometimes people don't know what they worship. Sometimes people just go about life living the unobserved life, which is never a good idea. But everyone has something which they've made God in their lives. And sometimes when we're doing evangelism, our job isn't to point out what someone centered their life around, uh, sort of imposing our uh, sort of systematic ideas onto people. It looks like coming alongside them and asking them questions to help them have themselves revealed to themselves. Um, back when I was dating my wife, um, she, um, I nearly didn't make the cut. Um, 
I remember organizing one day for Kath to come around to my place. I was going to make her a cup of tea, and then I was going to play basketball with her. I was going to just lose was my goal, Um, because that way I'm good, but I'm not a jerk. Um, That was my plan. And she had planned to come around that afternoon and break it off with me. I had no idea. Um, It would have been good for her to do if I didn't make the cut. It's a good thing to do. Break it off nice and clean. She spent the whole day with one of her friends that day, talking about her feelings, herself, whether she likes me, whether she doesn't, whether she's attracted to me, whether she's not. And uh, she got to the end of the day, and she turned to her friend, and and Kath said these words. She said, "Um, I'm so thankful that I've had this experience meeting this guy. It's really taught me that there are good Christians out there, Christian guys out there, that I could date. So pretty much, I like him, he's attractive, blah, 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 but not him. (laughs) And her friend turned to her and asked her this question. She said, what about him? And rather than coming over that afternoon to break it off with me, she came over to lose a game of basketball, (laughs) which she still debates. And uh, we ended up getting married eventually. Um, But what happened? Kath had a friend who came into her world and helped reveal Kath to herself with a good question. Kath had a friend who came into her world who helped reveal Kath to herself. And sometimes evangelism, when we're trying to connect with where people are at, we're just trying to get people to pause long enough, to think deep enough, to realize the thing that they've centered their life around. When we can connect with that, then we can go on to do what Paul does next. So sometimes evangelism looks like good questions, good listening, and then connecting with that thing. So what does Paul do next? He critiques. He critiques the Athenians for the very same thing which he's just complimented them on. might sound contradictory, but you have to go with this. It's, it gets a bit complex, but follow along, please. Listen really carefully. He, co- he compliments them and connects with this thing, and then he critiques the very same thing. It's really interesting. He says, I see what you worship. Very good, but you don't even know what you worship, I'm going to tell you. And so from verses 24 through to 31, Paul unpacks five ways in which the gods that the Athenians want to tick the box on, they don't know, but they want to tick the box on, five ways in which the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, revealed Himself in Jesus Christ, the way that He's both similar to what they expect, but different from what they can imagine. And so he basically unpacks five points. I don't have time to go into all of them, but he says God is creator, God is sustainer, God is ruler, God is father, and God is judge. And if you know the context of the people into whom he's speaking, you'll realize how fine of a tightrope Paul walks as he starts describing God to these. So let me unpack one just to show you what's going on. Um, You have to remember that it was the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers that are sort of in earshot of this conversation. And you have to know what Epicureanism and Stoicism is to understand how fine of a tightrope Paul walks here. Epicureanism and Stoicism were philosophical schools that began in the 4th century BC. So, just imagine this. Epicureans, they were skeptics. They're kind of like common atheists today. They were skeptics. They denied a bunch of the pagan gods. So, they'd say, look, you Athenians, you're fine to worship your gods, but we're just going to deny those. We don't think they're real. We're skeptical of that. Um... And they only affirm that whatever God was, He's unknowable, He's transcendent, He's other. So, if God's real in the Epicurean mind, 
he's other. We can't know him. That's what they thought. Stoics, on the other hand, they were pantheists, uh, which is just a fancy way of saying they thought God wasn't transcendent, but imminent, close. God is this room. God is this world. That's what Stoics used to think. They believed that the created world was God and that God was imminent in creation. So, you got one group of philosophers saying, on one hand, God is unknowable and unreachable. Another group of philosophers saying, God's just here, and He's everywhere, and He's everything. And so, when Paul says in verse 24 that God is Creator, he's connecting with and critiquing both of them at the same time. Here's how. Paul is saying that God is neither to be confused with this planet, that's what Stoicism says, that God is somehow everything, He's neither to be confused with creation, nor is he meant to be um, cut off from this creation, as Epicureanism says, Uh, meaning he's so transcendent, so far away, we can't know him. He's neither to be confused nor cut off from creation. The God of the Scriptures is the Creator, who remains distinct from His creation, but who by His Spirit is so present, you feel like you could reach out and touch Him. He's neither to be confused with creation nor cut off from his creations. What did the Athenians need? They needed a God who was knowable. But man-made philosophical concepts of God can only give you one without the other. If God is transcendent, then he's unknowable. If he's imminent, then he's not God. That's the catch. And Paul points it out really cleverly in this passage. But if God is transcendent and imminent, if He's far away but close, if He's the Creator who's distinct but also someone who's present, what God is like that? Christians know the answer. It's Jesus. It's the unknowable God made knowable. It's the unincarnate one who put on flesh. It's the far away God who became present, all in the face of Jesus Christ. By successfully connecting with something that the Athenians took for granted, he was also able to critique them in a way that even they had trouble arguing with. They wanted an unknowable God who was knowable, so they set up altars to tick the box. They end up having no God, just an idol. And Paul says, here's a God that ticks all your boxes, and he'll, he'll wreck your world. This is Jesus Christ. One writer, just to apply this to us, one writer has called this sympathetic accusation. It's a bit of jargon, but it's really helpful. It's kind of like an encouragement critique sandwich, you know, and one piece of the bread's an encouragement, the ham is a critique, and the other piece of bread's an encouragement. It's a really nice way to think about evangelism. Um, He says, what you do is you take somebody's beliefs, you connect with them, you you sincerely agree with them at one point, you affirm that the, that the belief or the thing around which they center their life is good, but then you point out that if you center your life around it and make it God, it's going to crush you. That's what Paul does. He connects, and then he draws the, out its logical implications and shows them how if they center their life around this created thing and make it God, it'll ultimately crush them. And so you end up saying something like this, since you believe this, why not follow this out to its logical implications? So whenever you meet somebody, let's get really concrete, whenever you meet somebody, according to this sort of method that Paul breaks out here, whenever you meet somebody, you need to start asking questions. What in this view of this person or in this person's life is good, uh, but not God? And what have they made ultimate? You need to start asking that question because you want to connect with it and then you want to critique it. Um, And then you want to ask, where does this belief or the love that they have, the thing they worship, 
where does that lead them ultimately? Does it become unlivable? Does it become inconsistent? Is it unsatisfying? And then the last thing you want to do is you want to ask the question, how does the Christian story address this belief or love? So let me get even more concrete. Take, for example, right now, social justice. Huge, huge issue in our time. Uh, If you turn on the news, it's all about social justice and achieving justice. Now, Christians would say that social justice is a good thing. Humans are made in the image of God. Everyone deserves dignity their way. Justice is God's ideal. A just society is what God wants. But when you take justice, something that's good, and you turn it into God and you center your life around it, it makes you into a very unjust person. What happens is you start to identify not just that there's justice out there, so not not just that there's evil out there, but that evil is particular people. And so you center your life around justice, and if people get in the way of you achieving justice, you end up becoming an oppressor who tries to wipe them out. That's actually a lot of the problem with justice without God. And so, what does it look like to make justice a created good and not God? It means trying to be the most just person within yourself, letting God transform you from the inside out, trying to do justice in this world, but never at the expense of any other human. Because the moment you try and pursue justice at the expense of other humans, you're no longer just, you're just an oppressor. And if you live a life without God pursuing justice and you sense your life around justice, you become the most unjust person. But if you live your life with God, having Him transform you from the inside out, your heart becomes melted, not calloused, and you in the way you live your life actually achieve justice for other people. How? Love. And so that's just one example. But it can be said with many other examples. David Foster Wallace, the same guy I quoted before, he said, he said this, that if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. You will never, ever You will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, be seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. If you can connect with the thing around which someone centered their life and point them out that if they make it ultimate, it'll ruin them connecting and critiquing, and then show them how that thing in its proper context in God's world makes more sense and won't ruin them? You're following Paul's example. You're connecting and you're critiquing. Um, One other really quick example, and then I'll move on to my last point. I was in the car the other day, it was just a week ago, here in Sydney, catching an Uber into the city. I was late for a meeting. And the guy who picked me up in the cab, he was from Africa, and Africa's a very spiritual place, a lot of animistic beliefs there. And, um, and we got to talking, and he basically said, I walked away from the Catholic Church, don't believe in institutionalized religion, um, I'm, I'm done with the God thing, I'm a man of science now, I'm a man of science. And so what's he done? I remember thinking, what's he, what's he just done? He's actually showed me that the thing for him, which is the center of his belief system, science, And so, I want to connect with that. Science is a good thing. 
Science helps us worship God. It tells us how He put the world together. What a wonderful thing. So I could say that to him. So I connected with him on that level. I said, um, I won't tell you his name. Let's call him Jeff. I was like, Jeff, science is amazing. It, it gives us insight into the mechanism of the world. But you know what science doesn't do? It doesn't give you meaning. It doesn't give you morality. Science can tell you that if you put poison into your grandmother's cup of tea, that it'll kill her. Science doesn't tell you whether or not to do it. Science can tell you maybe how the world was made or the latest theory describing how this world came to be, but it doesn't tell you why it's here. You need philosophy and theology. You need God. And so I was able to say science is good, but if you make it ultimate, you'll live a life without meaning, morality, and joy. But if you make science a created good in God's world and you worship and follow Jesus along the way, then you have reason to worship. Science becomes something that gives you life, not death. Gives you joy, not despair. And so we need to connect, and then we need to critique. And then Paul's final move, and it's really simple. We need to call people to Jesus. We need to call people to Jesus. He does this with a sense of urgency. From verse 30, he says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now, right now, you listeners, right now, God commands all people everywhere to repent. And I wish I had more time really to unpack this word, but there's two things that come to mind when you think of the word repent. One is the sort of barricose, uh, verbose, booming voice of an evangelist saying, repent, believe, turn or burn, this sort of very ominous figure. Um, the other is the way that the apostles used it. And sometimes these are at odds. When the apostles used the word repent, they employed the Greek word metanoieo, which just means change your mind. Now, they did use it with a sense of urgency and with a sense of seriousness. So, when they said repent, it was booming. It was, it was this side. It was like, repent. This means everything. Change your mind. Change your life. You need to change your ways now. Repent. God is a judge. You'll stand before Him. Repent. But over the years, that's been associated with sort of the modern imagery of an evangelist who has no skin in the game, who just tells complete strangers that God is a judge and nothing more, preaches a small piece of the story and doesn't give them the love and the goodness of Jesus. And so the, rep- the word repent for them in that context made complete sense. They were religiously affiliated people. They were pagans. They had idolatry. They knew what it meant to turn from one God to another to another. It was a casual word. And so Paul employs it, yes, with urgency, but in a way that made sense for them. When we use the word repent today, it's actually really unattractive. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't call people to the same thing. It just means we need to be wise with the words that we use when we're trying to take the unchanging message of the gospel to people who may have no framework. And so much damage has been done because we give some people one piece of the story and tell them to change their mind based on that. But if we can have all pillars of the gospel story in our mind, walking people through, knowing where they're at, connecting with them, critiquing them, and then calling them at the end of that to repent, it's actually going to come as good news. It's going to come as really good news. Repentance is good news. Is life getting you down? Come and meet the Creator. Have you got a guilt problem? We call it sin. Jesus dealt with it. Do you like science? It's pretty meaningless without God. Come and do it and worship Him through it. What is it that ails you? Come and meet Jesus. Repent. That's the call. And that's, even though we preach it with urgency, which, like Paul did, 
it was also really inviting. Um, when I was in the UK, my wife and I got back um, two months ago. We've been in Sydney for a month now. Still getting used to the fact that people beep us just after a second of not doing the right thing on the road. Um, so pray for us as we adjust. But <laughs> when we were in the UK, um, I was doing a university mission and we were doing talks every lunchtime, sort of on major objections that people have when they try and entertain the Christian faith. So it might be, you know, why should we trust the Bible? Or can you be a Christian and do science? Or all these different questions. And um, I was out giving flyers uh, on the streets, and this guy came up, tapped me on the shoulder, uh, and his name was Obri. And he said, what are you guys doing? And I was like, this is perfect. I'm going to tell him everything. Um, I was like, we're doing these lunchtime talks. Um, here's the talk today. It's on why trust the Bible. Is this a question you've had in your own life? Do you want to come along? He came along, enjoyed the talk. I turned to him afterwards and I said, hey, tell me what you thought about the talk. Tell me your story. Tell me your life. What do you believe? Who are you? Um, do you want to be best friends? Um, and then he really enjoyed it so much that we just ended up chatting for about half an hour, at which point I said, do you want to go get a coffee? Do you want to go find a space where we can have a more intentional conversation? This guy's not a Christian, Catholic upbringing, not a Christian anymore, uh, second-year psychology student. We go have a coffee, and the whole time I'm just sitting there listening, asking questions, trying to reveal himself to himself. What do you sense your life around? What do you worship? What do you believe? And it got to the point where every question that he had about the Christian faith, I was able to respond to, not because I'm really smart or anything. It just somehow I had the answers, and he found them satisfying. And so he basically turned to me at the end and he said, I've got no more questions. And I was like, great, I've got a question. What's holding you back from following Jesus? That was the call of urgency. It's pretty much a call to repent. What's holding you back from following Jesus? And he said, nothing. And so I said, well, following Jesus is a life of apprenticeship. Do you want to start it now with a conversation? You want to pray? And so we there in this coffee shop and we prayed. And we said, Amen. It was actually the first time I'd ever concretely met a stranger and led them to the Lord in an afternoon. It doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, it's crazy. And we finished praying, and I turned to him and I said, what's this like for you? And he said these amazing words. I'll, I'll honestly never forget them. He said, this feels like acceptance. This feels like acceptance. Not because God said, come here, don't change your life. He said, I love you as you are. I won't leave you as you are. It's the full gospel, Absolutely. He's like, this feels like acceptance. I know why I was made. I know my creator and I know the one who saved me. And so I went and tried to buy him a Bible and there's no Bibles at this bookstore and we didn't bring any on the mission. And so rule number one, take your Bible with you. Um, but I'll never forget those words. Another girl that I was studying with, her name's Emily. She told me her story. Um, she'd only become a Christian sort of a few years before I ended up studying with her in the UK. And I was like, what's your story, Emily? And, uh, and she said, I was walking around at university one day doing my undergrad, and my friend came up to me and said, have you heard the good news? And she said, no. And he's like, can I tell you? And she said, yeah. He told her the gospel, and she became a Christian. And then we were studying theology together in Oxford. Her life completely changed. It's not always going to be like that. But the one thing you should never not do, in other words, the one thing you should always do when you've journeyed with someone long enough, whether it's a whole afternoon or a lifetime, is always offer them an urgent invitation. Always invite people. And a great question, just to get really practical, I've found when I'm doing outreach with people is this, what's holding you back from becoming a Christian? What's holding you back right now? Because what happens when you ask that question is they actually articulate if something is. And if there's a huge objection that they have about the Christian faith, maybe it's the history of the church or maybe it's the reliability of the Bible or anything you actually get to say this, let's research that together. Let's continue this conversation. And what have you done? You may have not have given them the answer, 
but you've given them your presence, and therefore God through you to them. And so you've secured the conversation. And that'll do more for people coming to see Jesus than 20 seconds in an elevator. And so what do we need to do? We need to learn the story just as best as you can, not like, not up here. We need to learn the story. We need to embrace our limitations. We need to know our neighbor and act with wisdom. And then one really helpful way, looking at Paul in Acts 17. Not the only way, but one really helpful way to do evangelism is to connect with the thing around which people center their lives. Point out how it's crushing them, which is the critique. And then once you've done that, call them to Jesus. Make the invitation. Ask them what's holding them back. And I found this completely cha- like life-changing in the way that I minister to other people. Um, it's not that the method itself is um, sovereign or anything. It's just that God himself works. And this is a really helpful way. Um, and these are just some things I found helpful in trying to be a normal person doing outreach to other normal people. So let me pray. I really hope that was helpful. Um, come and chat with me afterwards if you would like to. It's been a real privilege just to serve you with the Word in this way. Um, I'll be praying for Grace Christian Community Church. Did I get that right? <laughs> GCC. Let's call it GCC. Um, I'm excited to be at the wedding next Saturday. Um, let me pray and I'll finish up. If you'd like to bow your heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that the gospel is not bad news, it's good news. And that you've given us the most incredible story in which we find ourselves characters, won by your grace through faith into your family. And I just pray for this church and your people here. And myself, Lord, would you make us helpful witnesses to your good news? Would many people come to know who Jesus is and what he's done and what his life secured for us? And Father, would you just make yourself glorified through your servants in and throughout Sydney and through Sydney for Australia and through Australia for the world. We want to see you lifted up, Jesus, because you're so worth it. And so we just give you ourselves even now. Refresh us, pour your spirit out on us, make us your own, turn us into the image of your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.